Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. On today's show, emails obtained by Global News appear to show that Ontario's Minister of Children and Community Social Services directed autism support service providers to stop contacting families of children with autism. We discussed this development with Bruce McIntosh, a PC staffer who quit in regards to the changes to the province's autism program. Also, we look at the latest developments in the SNC-Lavalin controversy, and former Ontario Cabinet Minister John Malloy weighs in on whether or not the Prime Minister's office should be reformed to deal with the issue ahead of this federal election. And speaking of election, what happens if NDP leader Jagmeet Singh loses in Burnaby South by election today? University of Ottawa Professor Genevieve Tellier talks to us about that and lots more about the election coming up in October. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We covered this story a number of weeks ago when the Ford government announced changes to the autism protocol and the funding for that. Uh, We had the minister, Lisa McLeod, on the program. She defended it, of course, and said this was all about trying to eliminate these wait lists. Uh, There are a lot of critics about that, though, uh, about what the, the Tories are proposing to do here, suggesting that it's actually going to make things worse, not better, for families that are dealing with autism. Now we find out over the weekend that emails obtained by Global News appear to show that Ontario's Ministry of Children, Community and Social Services, that same Lisa McLeod, directed autism support service providers to stop contacting families of children with autism. As a matter of fact, in one email, a manager with the Carey's Place Autism Services said, As of this afternoon, we have been asked to pause on making calls to families regarding DSO or DGO services until further notice. Now, the speculation is, among some of the critics, is that what they did by by doing this and telling them to just hold off on this was create that crisis with the waiting list so it could justify their new policy. Rather draconian if, in fact, that's what's going on. I want to bring Bruce McIntosh into the uh, discussion. Uh, Bruce, of course, is a former head of the Ontario Autism Coalition and also formerly a a PC staffer who quit his post with uh, the PC government uh, because these changes were being put forth by the uh, Ford government at the time. Uh, Welcome, Bruce, back to the program. Bruce, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Hi, Bill. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, listen, in light of the, uh, the report that we saw from Global News over the weekend, are you surprised? Well, it, it, it explains a lot. Um, we knew that, that parents were just simply not getting spaces uh, in the program for their children, and now we understand why. Um, the, the next leg of this story, I'll give you the insight that's, that's, that's coming, is that we've got several of those parents who have now told us that um, suddenly spaces have become available to them over the last um, month and a half. Uh, shortly before and since the uh, the announcement, um, so you know the the ministers claim that there was no money. Uh, clearly, if those parents are getting spaces before the the end of the fiscal year, there was money there. It just simply wasn't being spent while all of this was placed on hold. And the corollary to that is those children could have been in service last September. I mean, this is this is not um, this is not a small issue. The sooner that intervention comes the better. And the minister claims that that's what she's trying to do, but there's better ways to do it. And this is, um, this is, <laughs> well, there's some pretty angry parents. No kidding. Fact. No kidding. We've heard from many of them over the last number of weeks before these emails even came to light, uh, yeah. just about the program proposals and what was going on here and the funding formula that was in place. But uh, to suggest, as, as, as some people are now looking at uh, this data and looking at some of these emails, 
that uh, that this was a, a crisis created by the government, a false crisis, really created by the government. In other words, as you just mentioned, Bruce, <laughs> there were spaces available, but they did, they wouldn't allow anybody to fill those spaces because they wanted everybody to think that there was a crisis waiting list. Well, that's right, Bill. I mean, you know, she's she's talked about fiscal pressures, but if you're set, if you're sending an employee away to do something else, well, you know, they're still being paid. I mean, they could have been paid to do this work instead of that work, but just putting a freeze on the thing, um, you're not you're not getting what they're paid to do. Uh, kids could have been getting therapy, and they weren't, and that was the minister's choice. Um, so we're. We're really angry. This is just another log on the fire. This this cannot go on. What are the implications? Talk to us a little bit about this, Bruce. I mean, this is not your first rodeo. You've been doing this. You've been advocating for people with disabilities all your life. Uh, well, and, right. and, and, of course, a, a great deal of that time with the Ontario Autism Coalition. Uh, maybe for those who don't understand exactly what's going on with families that are, are living with autism, uh, explain how this holdup in, in, the, in the wait lists and, and the holdup in funding can actually have an impact on those families. Well, early inter- early intervention is critical. The minister is quite correct about that. Um, but the intensity of what the child uh, receives is equally important. Uh, so, um, you know, our argument against what she's what she's trying to do is that, um, which is in in brief, uh, spread the money equally over all of the parents who are or all of the kids who are waiting for service. Is is not a reflection of their individual needs. So there are kids at the at the high needs end of the spectrum who are going to need programs that go to um, thirty and forty hours a week, and those can cost eighty thousand a year, give or take. Um, so the the twenty thousand that the child's going to get if they're under five isn't going to come anywhere close to covering that, and we're going to be back to a time like it was when I first got involved in this issue that. Parents are going to be selling their homes. They're going to be, you know, verging on bankruptcy in order to pay the additional amount of money. So, and, you know, the other thing is that that annual amount, you know, the minister talks about the 140000 from diagnosis to 18 for the little ones. The annual amount is going to drop on their seventh birthday, and they'll only be getting 5000 a year. And I thought we had this settled. There is absolutely nothing about a birthday that affects the child's level of need. It's whether or not they're getting the therapy. And so to drop that amount so drastically at that point is is just what the liberals tried to do three years ago. Yep. We had that fight and we settled it. So I, I just don't understand why this minister didn't learn that lesson. Well, over and above that lesson, uh, there there were, uh, let me put it this way, suggestions from organizations like yourselves at, at Autism Coalition and other autism organizations suggesting, look, at if you're going to tinker with this, here's maybe some of the things that you should consider because we, we're living this. We can give you some positive ideas as, as to how to make this system better. And it, it seems from, from what we heard from this rollout so far, Bruce, that they've done the total opposite of what you were recommending. I don't believe that there was any realistic consultation whatsoever, Bill. And I, I, I'm the more that we see in these emails and the more that we're hearing out of the government, I mean, I can tell you that our organization was never really listened to. I mean, we, uh, my wife took over the presidency when I resigned to go to work at Queen's Park. And, you know, she went in. She even had an op-ed 
posted in, in the Toronto Star. And, and the minister did exactly the first thing in the please don't do this column uh, in that op-ed. You know, the, the, the practitioners, the Ontario uh, Association for Behavior Analysis, they're the folks that, that were kind of central to re- the releasing of these documents that are, that are at issue right now. They, they were listened to, but none of their recommendations, and there were some solid stuff in that, uh, none of that was, was listened to or implemented. So, I, you know, I, I used to be on the, on the advisory committee for the design of the program as it stood. There was unfinished work. That group wasn't brought together. The province has a clinical expert panel that's, um, that is paid experts, uh, psychologists and behavior analysts and, and occupational therapists and so on, speech language pathologists that understand program delivery firsthand. They're paid by the government under an order in council. They weren't reconvened. None of these groups since the election. I don't know who was listened to, but it certainly wasn't anybody who had a clue because this is what they're rolling out is a disaster. And the way that they're rolling it out is even worse. I want to ask you, when you were on the program, of course, a couple of weeks ago, just as this uh, legislation was being introduced, and and as I'm sure you're aware, Minister McLeod followed you just uh, right after you and I finished our conversation. And mm-hmm. coincidentally, as a matter of fact, when I went home that day, I saw both of you on CP24 in, the, in that same order. Uh, and and you, the timing and, and the placement of that was rather interesting because she, what she tried to do was refute many of the things that you said. And and with, uh, vis-a-vis funding, uh, the point that she kept coming back to is these waiting lists here, and Bruce, and essentially saying, look, it, we've got other people in my ministry that we have to look after, you know, people dealing with addictions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh. And so, and, but my point back to her was, she says, where am I going to get that money? My point back to her was, your government sets the budgets. You can put as much money or as little money into those programs as you want. Nobody's tying your hands to increase that funding. That was a government made by, or a decision, rather, made by that government. This is an issue that we've confronted repeatedly over the years. The way that the money is spent is far more important than the amount of money itself. There's lots of money in the system. And frankly, if the Minister of Education would get her act together and do what we've been asking for for more than 15 years, and that's get services into schools using special education funding, um, then that would leave, relieve a lot of the pressures on Minister McLeod's program. But I, I have been hearing services in schools since Dalton McGinty was running in 2003, and it still hasn't come to pass in a, in a realistic, meaningful way in the classroom for the kids who need it. So, you know, she can, she can try to gaslight us all she wants with, with the other people who need money. Lots of people need funding. I get that. And I'd like them to receive it. But for our kids, there are solutions here. We've been putting them forward. And we were making progress with the old program. I mean, these things are, these things are now quite self-evident. We have parents who suddenly got spaces offered to them in the last few weeks. And that they were, they were victims of this freeze. So there was money there. It could have been spent sooner. There's money. The wait list is moving. I agree not quickly enough. But there's ways to improve that that don't involve 
a, a way that is going to make sure that no child really gets exactly what they need. Bruce, you've got a, a rather unique position here because obviously, as we mentioned, you worked with Ontario uh, Autism Coalition for some time, uh, but then you were an insider with the government as they tried to, to develop this policy. So you got, I guess, some insight as to what was going on in their heads. What is the problem, and, and why are they so dismissive? Because I brought it up two or three times in my discussion with the minister about needs-based funding as opposed to simply a blanket check and said, here's your twenty grand, no matter where you are on the spectrum. Well, I, I, first of all... Is, is it way, too much work for them? I, well, I work for Amy Fee in her capacity as an MPP. I was not involved uh, directly in the, in the, uh, in the policy decision-making. When I went to Queen's Park... I wanted to help Amy because she is the parent of a child with autism, mm-hmm. and, I, and I thought she'd be a strong advocate. She has been. She, we met at the protests three years ago. She understands the issue firsthand. So I was hoping that by being there, I would be able to have at least a bit of input. Um, that got stiff-armed pretty quickly. And the minister's chief of staff has been out on Twitter many times since I, since I resigned, saying, you know, oh, they weren't going to listen to me because I advised on, um, on the, the, uh, the Liberals' uh, work on the program. Well, look, I've, I've been a conservative since I was a teenager. Um, nothing about that suddenly uh, changed the CD in the back of my head. I don't know what this man thinks, but I probably had a party card before he was born. Um, well, over and above that, I mean, the reality is if you had input into, in a, at least an attempted input into the policies that were developed by the Liberals, you're doing that as a stakeholder. I mean, as, as a family that's living with this and has been dealing with this for years, why not? Well, who doesn't want to listen to a good idea, you know? Well, I got an idea. Uh, who it, I, I, I'm, I'm developing a list. Well, that's, that seems to be the case. I mean, there's, there's this almost knee-jerk reaction that, well, if the Liberals did it, it must be bad. Um, and I think that's, that, that's really unfortunate. If you're sincere about making this be a nonpartisan issue, then make it be a nonpartisan issue. If you're concerned about some uh, perceived imbalance, make sure that your advisory committee is politically balanced. But don't just throw out the baby with the bathwater, quite literally in some cases. Where do we go from here? I, I, you know, this the pushback on this is is relentless, and I'm glad to see that. And people are not giving up. I mean, we have we've talked before about news cycles, and well, in a week or so, people will forget and move on. They're not forgetting about this. Oh, uh, no, will no, will no, pressure no, have an impact on the government, Bruce? Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, the things that they are doing just on this file. I have had parents talk to me about all of those things I mentioned earlier: selling the house, you know, whatever else. There are families that are contemplating divorce in order to um, in order to manage the uh, the income testing, right? Like, and there's absolutely nothing about a parent's level of income that relates to their child's level of need. I mean, it's just they're just utterly unconnected. And and this is what's happening. There are going to be job losses because of this in in the in the practitioners field. I've heard estimates ranging anywhere between 1,400 and 2,000 people who are going to be out of work. Now, that higher number probably includes the you know, custodial staff and receptionists and other supports, but nevertheless, like, this, is, this is going to put people out of work because the families won't be able to afford to top up the amount of money, and that's all that's been built is going to be swept away. 
they've got to start listening. We are more than happy to sit down and and offer those um, those good ideas, and I hope she listens. So do and we. So are the other organizations that I mentioned that weren't adequately consulted. I she needs a do over, and we're happy to help. Well, I, I want to be a conservative bill. I really, really do, but she's making it hard. Uh, it's a story that's not going to go away, Bruce. We'll stay in touch, and uh, hopefully there'll be a, a, a happy ending to this. But we've got a lot of heavy lifting to do. Thanks for the time today. There's no stop to it, so thanks for this. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Things continue to heat up, with, of course, with the SNC-Lavalin affair, with the uh, speculation that uh, former Attorney General uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould may actually testify before the uh, Judicial Committee tomorrow. Uh, this in light of, uh, first of all, the revelation that uh, that some people are suggesting that there was pressure applied to the Attorney General uh, to get involved in the uh, SNC-Lavalin uh, court case. Uh, she did not resign. Uh, she was changed in her cabinet position and eventually uh, uh, did resign from the Veterans Affairs uh, portfolio to which she was given. Uh, and on and on it goes. Uh, also, with this controversy uh, heating up, the uh, chief of staff, uh, one Gerald Butts, uh, resigned from the prime minister's office. They are longtime friends. I guess they've known each other since university. Uh, and that move has sparked the calls for, look at a reorganization of the prime minister's office to begin with. And not just this particular prime minister, but the all-powerful PMO. We've heard about this under the, the Trudeau administration, the Harper administration, uh, the Martin administration. It goes on and on and on and on. Is it time to reorganize this? Well, uh, one former politician says, sure, uh, PMO should be reformed, but doing it is going to be a tall order. Uh, he is John Malloy. John, of course, is a former Ontario cabinet minister, a practitioner in residence in Laurier's political science department, and assistant professor of public ethics and coordinator of the Center for Public Ethics at Waterloo Lutheran Seminary, uh, and always a welcome guest on the program. John, great to have you with us again. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, it's great. It's great to be with you. And just one one little uh, editorial change. Uh, Waterloo Lutheran Seminary has proudly changed its name. We're now Martin Luther University College. This Excellent. Happened a short while ago, so I'll get a plug in for them. I know you also. Uh, you also. I know lecture down the street too. University of Waterloo, don't you? Yeah, it confuses everyone. What do you do in your spare wife, time, but, John? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Listen, let, let's talk a little bit about what's going on right now. Uh, and, and you mentioned, by the way, the, the piece that uh, has been published in a number of different uh, publications and newspapers over the last couple of days. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, you knew Gerald Butch, didn't you? I did, I did. We worked together at uh, Queen's Park. He was actually in a similar role to Premier McGinty and... Uh, uh, I was uh, first uh, a backbencher, and then probably we overlapped a bit when I was in cabinet. I, I, I see him now and again in Ottawa. He's obviously, or he was, a very busy person, and uh, uh, I think other than a few pleasantries about the weather and our families, that's been about it. But listen, I, 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 I knew him. I know him, uh, a decent fellow, a capable fellow, honorable fellow. I have no inside information on uh, what's going on up there and was perhaps as, as perplexed as everyone else when he announced his resignation. Well, uh, the speculation, and you've heard this before, that somebody had to take the fall, and uh, I, I don't know whether that's true in this particular case or not, but the, the piece you wrote, John, actually talks about, uh, I guess, the character of the position, and, and we know this as the almighty PMO, where uh, that that's really where the governing happens, and, and it's not just an accusation against the Trudeau government. Uh, it's been, it's been a, an accusation leveled at previous federal governments, previous provincial governments as well. What goes on in there, and, and what's the purpose of, of that staff within the Prime Minister's or the Premier's office, as it would be? 
Well, I mean, they they serve a, a role, uh, a legitimate role, and I, I guess in in you know if we continue the full disclosure, before I became an elected official, I actually worked for five years in Prime Minister Kretzian's Prime Minister's office. I was uh, part of his senior staff, so I've I've seen it from both sides. I was also a, a cabinet minister who got called on the carpet now and again by premier's office staff. I mean, w- government is very complicated. Uh, government is very siloed, and uh, you need uh, uh, someone at the top, a boss. And I think people get that, that there needs to be central coordination. There needs to be uh, a way to bring different views together and come up with a consensus. What happens, though, is because the person at the top, the premier or the prime minister, is so busy and has so much uh, coming across their desk, is they delegate a lot of that to staff, which tends to be a bit younger, maybe not as experienced. And over time, I think... uh, uh, you know, I mean, this is the accusation. They start to throw around their weight. Uh, the nickname is the kids in short pants. They become very obsessed with um, little things. Uh, they try to push people around. Uh, you know, senior cabinet ministers find themselves being berated by, by some kid barely out of university. That's the stereotype. Uh, I kind of fall maybe halfway in the, in the middle. I think those stereotypes exist. But I also think in this day and age with the 24-hour news cycle, with complicated policy issues, with the obsession that voters and the media and others have with the leader, uh, I think it's natural that you're going to have a strong group who, who, who try to keep governments afloat. Well, with that in mind, and, and we've heard some of the stories about some of the, the things that some of these people and staffs have been involved in. I mean, I, I, you know, John, as well as I do, there's some people out there that think that, you know, look, you need to have a degree in skullduggery before you can even get a job in the PMO uh, because you're doing the dirty work. You're the pit bull for the, the prime minister or the premier, as it would. And I mean, you, you know what? They're, they're, and I think it's funny because for all the, all the criticism, uh, that you hear, and maybe this isn't leading us to a solution, but all the criticism you hear uh, behind closed doors on, on Parliament Hill or in, the, in Queen's Park or the Premier's office or the Prime Minister's office, oftentimes people do kind of appreciate that there's, there, there's someone at the top willing to do the tough things, make the tough decisions. Uh, I remember uh, part of my job for Prime Minister Kretzian, or my main job, was what today would be called an issues manager. I used to deal with crises that, that, that came up, and oftentimes, you know, the phone would be ringing. Instead of me phoning and yelling at a minister, it would be a minister calling me saying, what are we going to do? I mean, there is this sort of natural inclination that we want we want someone at the top uh, to figure it out for us and someone at the top to maybe do uh, a little bit of the, uh, uh, the nasty work. That said, uh, I think it has gotten out of control. Um, these individuals... And I'm not being partisan. I'm not picking on Gerald Butts. You know, I'll include John Malloy. I'll include everyone in it who who works in these roles. You can become very comfortable very fast. And I think you at times you kind of forget that your name was never on a ballot, and that uh, there needs to be a, a little bit better way of doing things. When they have those discussions, and we're talking about the staff, the Gerald Butts or the Nigel Wrights, if you want to go back to the Harper administration. Uh, when they have those discussions with cabinet ministers more often than not, I don't know if they spend a whole lot of time with backbenchers, are they echoing or are they the, the, the policy or the thoughts and, 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 and concerns about the prime minister themselves, or are they freelancing? Uh, I'd say it falls in, 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 in three categories. Sometimes you're delivering a message from 
the prime minister. And, you know, you've got to realize the, 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 how crazy the world is up there. I mean, you know, the, the prime minister, particularly if he's on the road or even if he's just uh, uh, tied up, might call and in a, in a three-minute discussion you cover four or five different areas and, uh, you know, on issue X or Y, he's very clear, you've got to do this. I'm thinking of my experience, and you phone and say, look, the Prime Minister wants it done. We can't really argue it. Um, the second is uh, they may be uh, echoing uh, sort of the tone, the general direction, that they may have had a general chat with the Prime Minister or Premier and sort of know the direction that he or she wants to go, and that's being conveyed. And then the third, and of course this is the most dangerous, is the, hey, I've been around the Prime Minister so long, I can figure out what he or she might want in this situation, so I'm just going to channel that through and I'm going to phone and, and throw my weight around and say do this, that, or the other because I suspect that might be what they might want to do. Maybe, I don't know, but I'm going to pretend anyway. And that, of course, is where uh, uh, things start to get uh, uh, crazy. And, I mean, I've had instances particularly as a cabinet minister, where I very politely said to the staffer, well, thank you very much, but I'd like to talk directly to the premier. And you've had that opportunity to maybe tell your side of the story and sort things through. The problem is it's, it's one person who's juggling, you know, a million different things. And it's not sort of like that staffer can, can put their hand over the, uh, the receiver and shout, hey, premier, come here, Malloy wants to talk to you. I mean, sometimes it could take a day or two to get a meeting or a phone call with them, and, and you're dealing with a crisis that's just just started or you know needs to be dealt with uh, immediately what about the chain of command and, and and who answers to whom in situations like this john because there have been has been a great deal of speculation to do with well the senate expense scandal with the harper administration and now obviously with the the uh, snc lavalin situation that that they're 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 hypothesizing here that sometimes staff members can make decisions or actually order edicts as you've just talked outlined that maybe the prime minister is not aware of, or maybe not aware of the conversation, or, or actually what was going on. Uh, deniability, I guess, is, is one way of looking at it. But on the other hand, people kind of look at that skeptically and say, "Well, come on, how could the prime minister not know?" Well, I mean, I mean, you raise a very, very good point, and uh, uh, you know, it ha- does it happen? Of course, it happens. And again, uh, you know, it's 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 hard to imagine sometimes until you're in one of these roles when you see. Uh, the schedule of the prime minister or the premier, um, you know, and, and layer in some foreign travel or even layer in domestic travel. And it sounds crazy, but, you know, these, these are individuals who, who can get tied up. You know, if, uh, pick, a, pick an example. You know, the prime minister is on the, on the floor of uh, the United Nations for a general assembly. You know how they bring uh, leaders in mm-hmm. at, at times like that. And I remember a colleague, I wasn't involved with this, a colleague having to get a message to uh, the prime minister, at that point, Prime Minister Kretzian, on the floor of the United Nations. You, know, you want to see some, uh, some crazy stuff that was going on. That would obviously be something that was of the highest importance. When it's a you know a scandal that's on the front page of the Globe and Mail or the the National Post, guess what? The chief of staff or someone lower down the down the food chain is going to have to deal with it. Is going to have to try to figure out what the prime minister might want done, and is going to uh, uh, order people around. The problem with that is that that individual's name wasn't on a ballot. And, uh, you know, and it's not just, I hate to say it, it's not just uh, the, the busy schedule of the prime minister and the fact they may not be available at that moment. It's also just the size of the government, the breadth of government. The, the prime minister can't 
be looking at uh, you know every single decision that's being made. Uh, neither can his office, but you can bet that his office is looking at a lot more than he is flagging any problems and apparently goes up. So you create this dynamic where you have staff members who are who are quote unquote managing things, are giving direction and uh making decisions which you know as a voter you can question is that is that correct that this unelected person is doing that we've seen very strong uh, chiefs of staff uh, in, in u.s political realms obviously in the white house uh, uh they've been characterized on tv shows like the west wing and so many others uh we've seen it in actual fact here on this side of the border too with some of the concerns that have gone on how realistic and practical is, is it, John, for the suggestion that, look, you need to decentralize power in those offices, that you can't have it this way? Because I'm getting the sense from the piece that you wrote uh, last week that uh, that anybody who gets elected to the highest office, whether it be president, premier, or, pre- or prime minister, is going to want somebody like that on their staff. They definitely are. And and the, the point of my piece is that too often, and this is what, uh, you know, drove me to write it. The frustration is too often the critics stand on the side, the columnists and the pundits, and say, we need a decentralized prime minister's office. You need to reform it. You know as well as I do, and I'm not, despite my uh, liberal background, I'm not being partisan here. You know that Andrew Scheer and Jagmeet Singh are going to say in the election, if you elect me, I won't have this this uh, uh, out-of-control PMO. Um, that's not enough. Because you know darn well that if Jagmeet Singh or Andrew Scheer or Elizabeth May becomes prime minister, that they are going to have the exact same structure. I mean, you know, it doesn't matter whether we're talking liberals, conservatives, whoever, that's going to happen. Uh, And that simply saying, I'm going to put an end to it, isn't enough. So is there a way to get around it? And I argue in the piece, I think there is. Uh, You have to start by looking at decision making. How are decisions made by, by governments? Are there... Uh, different uh, levers that could be put in place, different process, different infrastructure to make those decisions. You know what the downside of that is? The upside is all of a sudden you're going to involve more uh, elected members. You're going to have uh, more of a voice of the people that uh, you know are directly representing the voters. The, the, the downside is it's going to be slower. It's going to maybe be a little messier. You may actually start to, to read stories where Minister X says one thing and Minister Y might say something slightly different. Everyone's going to reach for their smelling salts and say, oh, isn't this awful? But you know what? A new kind of system that involves people more, that allows elected members more input, that has more checks and balances, would probably go a long way to decentralizing the prime minister's office. But uh, the next prime minister, and it might be Prime Minister Trudeau, I'm just saying whoever, whoever you know, when the dust settles as fall as prime minister, is actually going to have to consciously speak about a new decision-making system, about new infrastructure that's being put in place, about new ways of doing things. I've heard absolutely no one talking that way, uh, partly because I don't think they want to get down in the weeds, and partly because it doesn't make for good political slogans. It's better to stand up there and say, if I'm prime minister, there's not going to be these powerful unelected advisors. And I admit it, when I heard Justin Trudeau say that in opposition, I rolled my eyes and said, of course there are. You're going to run an office every bit as powerful as Stephen Harper's, as Paul Martin's, as Jean Chrétien's, as Pierre Trudeau's, as Brian Mulroney's. It's the nature of the beast. And until you start to talk about changing the nature of the beast, it's a promise that no one's going to keep. 
Well, exactly, because uh, part B to all those promises about more open government, et cetera, decentralizing, is I'm going to give backbench MPs a lot more power uh, and responsibility. And and how does that work out in the short term? It just seems as if they all gravitate to that. Uh, no, I'd rather just have these three or four people that are close to me that I know that I can count on to get this stuff done, as opposed to somebody from other, you know, that they may or may not know or may not have that much confidence in. Well, exactly. Exactly. And, I, and part of it, I think, is, is part of it's human nature and the nature of the job. But part of it is because we never hold our politicians to account when they claim that they're going to do things differently. We never have the follow-up question, well, tell me exactly how. And, and you and I know why. It's because, <laughs> because we're, you know, we're turning the channel to the next item on the news. or we're, you know, I mean, th- th- that would actually require a bit of dialogue and a bit of debate and uh, people to be a little bit more engaged in, in politics. And you know, we'd have to move from slogans to, to actual policy discussions. And structure of government, I mean, you know, they're sort of the three of the most boring words that have uh, ever been said, and yet they're so important uh, in, in terms of undoing some of this, this strong centralization. There's always going to be centralization. But I think there's uh, a lot more room for uh, caucus and cabinet in terms of doing their job. John Malloy, always a pleasure, John. Thanks so much for this. Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Important day on uh, the federal election scene. We've already talked about the SNC-Lavalin affair, and I call that those hearings are going to continue. And, uh, of course, the speculation that uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould may testify as early as tomorrow Andrew Scheer, uh, just uh, on national TV a few minutes ago, and uh, trying to uh, egg on the uh, the prime minister to actually be go before the committee. I'm not so sure that's going to happen. But there is a way to test the barometer, and that is what these three by-elections are going to be occurring. And there are some pretty big questions that uh, could be answered by the end of the evening tonight. Joining us to talk about the uh, by-elections themselves and the implications, Genevieve Tellier, professor in the School of uh, Political Studies at the University of Ottawa. Genevieve, great to have you with us. Okay, thanks so much for the time today. Thank you very much. I mean, first of all, let's, let's in no particular order, but let's talk about Outremont, which is, uh, for those who may not know, just uh, in Montreal, it's a riding that was a liberal stronghold for generations uh, until Tom Mulcair won it for the NDP. Uh, and and, and I, I think, as you and I have discussed in the past, that was maybe uh, the beachhead that the NDP really used for their, their orange wave that took over Quebec a few years ago, wasn't it? Yes, it, yes, it was. And uh, maybe people don't know, but Thomas Mulcair, before being a federal MP, was a provincial member of the National Assembly under the Liberals. So uh, I think he was elected... Pe- Perhaps maybe also because of his background as a former liberal. So uh, I, I would be very surprised if the liberal don't win it tomorrow, today or tomorrow. Uh, but yes, it was the beginning of a strong uh, orange uh, wave, uh, which seemed to have disappeared in the province. So uh, the result will show us uh, up to what point it, it is the case. How severe is the free fall that the NDP are in in Quebec right now, Genevieve? It is very severe, and there is a newcomer on the provincial scene, which is the Bloc Québécois. And so they are presenting a strong candidate also in Outremont, so that will be interesting if, uh, to see how much uh, vote they are able to, to, to garnish. Um, but yes, it, it is severe, um, and the Liberals are still popular in the province, and as I said, the Bloc Québécois could be the surprise of the next election in Quebec, uh, so that will be the, uh, to, to, to see. And, and just to underscore the importance of Quebec, uh, as far as that orange wave that we talked about, uh, of course, in the subsequent federal election where that wave actually occurred, uh, Jack Layton and the NDP moved into opposition status as opposition leader. But that huge rise they had, that huge orange wave, was basically in Quebec, wasn't it? The, 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 the votes and the seats that they uh, got procured in most of the rest of the 
country is what they usually get. Mm-hmm. It, it was Quebec that really catapulted them into that seat. Yes, it was. And it was uh, interesting because you had a lot of people with no background at all, any political experience, that were elected and they themselves were surprised. I know there was a, a candidate in a rural riding, uh, Rutil in Brussels. She was living in Ottawa, and so she presented herself in a rural Quebec riding, uh, not very far from Quebec City. And so that sh- speaks volume, I think, to what occurred at that time. And so uh, Quebecers were ready to to support people that they didn't, didn't know, know any uh, at all. Uh, they voted for Jack Layton in a large part, and they also voted for change. Change was a very, very important factor at the time. I don't think that change is as important for this election. Um, and so, yes, even though the NDP has been there now for many years in Quebec because of the uh, result of, of the election. This, they are supposed to have some uh, good ground organization. I'm not sure that will be enough to get out the vote uh, tomorrow, today for Outremont in, in the next federal election in October also. Well, of course, in that election where the NDP did so well, that was a few elections ago now, mm-hmm. uh, it, the political landscape was totally different, wasn't it? As you mentioned, the, the bloc had essentially been, been decimated. Uh, uh, they were disenchanted with Michael Ignatieff and the Liberal Party mm-hmm. at that particular particular time. Uh, so they turned to the NDP as the alternative, saying, well, okay, we don't want to vote them in because we're angry at them right now. Uh, but as you mentioned, with the, the revival of the bloc now, uh, that that could be the NDP could be the odd party out. Yes, it is. And uh, if we recall also during the 2011 election, uh, the change occurred like uh, two weeks before the election. So it was very sudden. It was unpredictable, uh, very close to the election. So it showed that uh, in Quebec, the vote was very volatile. Um, the same thing could happen here in at this federal election. Um, so maybe we'll see a few signs tomorrow in Tremont, but I'm not sure it will probably take a bit more time to, to see it develop and see elsewhere in Quebec where the bloc is able to support some, some support, to gain some support. Um, but yes, I would say that the Quebec electorate for the moment is highly volatile. I don't think that most electors really won't know what they want. Um, and this will be a question between are they satisfied with the Liberal, yes or no? And so will they su- continue to support the, to this government? Uh, or uh, are they dissatisfied, not happy with how the f- files are handled, and uh, then vote for the block? Genevieve, one of the questions a lot of people are asking right now is is what impact, if any, the SNC-Lavalin uh, scandal, as some people are calling it, affair in other people's minds, is going to have on these by-elections in particular. Uh, time will tell what's going to happen in Burnaby, and we'll, we'll get into the uh, the other one in York Region in a couple of minutes. But my understanding is that actually in, in Quebec, uh, the, by and large, the population there is quite pleased with the way the Liberal government has handled this. I mean, we're talking about 9,000 jobs in the Quebec economy th- mm-hmm. that are on the line here. They, I think, you know, that, that's actually going to, I would think, work to the Liberals' benefit in there. Yes, because uh, on that file, the Conservative and the NDP has not been a strong supporter for the Quebec interests. And so, yes, uh, I, I agree with your analysis. In Quebec, the SNC-Lavalin doesn't resonate the same way. Uh, we are questioning why the government or the former minister was not more supportive of the company and so uh, the liberal has shown a, a, that they are caring about this company it's important and so and and in this riding which is at the heart of Montreal in Outremont where you have many people working at La Vallée SNC La Vallée uh, living there uh, that could be a factor that would help to uh, that will help the liberals so that, so that one, if, if we're handicapping this, and that's a fool's game to actually try to predict anything in politics these days, but it looks like the Liberals probably will retake that seat. 
and and we can talk about the implications that's going to have. Will that serve as that beachhead for the federal government, for the Trudeau Liberals heading into the election in October? I think so. And you know what? Normally by-elections are not that important, but I think that those three by-elections today are important, and that would be very uh, strong uh, strong message, and uh, that would be supportive for the Liberals. They would be very, very happy to win that uh, riding. And if they don't, uh, they could say, well, we didn't have it anyway, so it's not that of a problem. But I am pretty sure that they want to have it. As we said just before, it's a strong liberal uh, hold historically. Uh, but yes, that could set the table for uh, the next election by showing that, well, yes, the SNC-Lavalin file did not harm the liberals in Quebec. I, I don't want to be dismissive of, of the, the Ontario by-election that's going on in, in York Simcoe, just north of, of Toronto. Uh, but it's been a conservative seat. Peter Van Loon, the former cabinet minister in the Harper government, held that seat for the longest time since 2004. Uh, and I think he won the last election with about a 50% of the vote. Uh, that's going to stay conservative, wouldn't you think? Yes, everybody thinks that. Uh, we don't see how we could switch. Um, so at first sight, we could say, okay, it's not very interesting, that's writing. Uh, that being said, uh, we have to look at the Maxime Bernier factor. So uh, he is also presenting a candidate, so somebody belonging, I would say, to the far right, more to the right than, than, than the, the conservative uh, candidate. And so that could be interesting to see how many uh, votes that candidate could, could bring. That being said, I don't think that uh, York Simcoe is the writing to check uh, this, the popularity of uh, Maxime Bernier. Uh, it would be more in the West, Western Canada, I would say, but um, that could be still interesting to see. To see if people go vote, to see uh, how far, how, how high the percentage of vote the Conservatives are, are, are winning to, uh, today. So, uh, yes, but as you said, uh, I agree with you, we don't want to be dismissive of this uh, by-election, but I don't think it's the most important of the three. No, but your point's well taken. I, 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 and you're, I think I agree with you. The People's Party, Maxime Bernier's party, uh, maybe doesn't have a foothold here, but uh, it, it might be instructive to see just what com- a percentage of the vote that party gets in that election, uh, because the concern, I guess, for the Conservatives is the People's Party is probably not going to elect anybody in a, in a general election, but they could bleed votes away from the Conservatives. Yes, and uh, there was also an example a few years ago with uh, Doug Ford, because when Doug Ford, you know, when he was nominated at the leadership convention, we were kind of surprised to see how many support he had in every riding in, in, across the province. And so maybe there's something there also. Um, what we saw with Doug Ford uh, could also translate at the federal scene. So, uh, yes, probably we won't have the full picture tomorrow, but uh, that could be interesting to see. All right, let's let's move to the West Coast right now, and and I guess this is the the by-election that's gaining the most uh, notoriety for obvious reasons. Uh, Burnaby South uh, and uh, Jagmeet Singh, the uh, federal leader of the NDP party, is looking for a seat, uh, and uh, th- this has been a very topsy-turvy uh, election by-election, hasn't it? I mean, I, I I know at one point the Liberal candidate seemed to be slightly ahead. Uh, obviously, the, she fell into disrepute rather quickly because of some of her actions, uh, but it's not a slam dunk for Mr. Singh yet either. That's surprising. It should be, because uh, traditionally that riding did vote NDP, not all the time, but did. Uh, now we have the provincial government, which is an NDP government that has said, I think yesterday, well, uh, we back uh, Jack Metzing, and so please vote for him. Uh, so yes, it should have been very easy for him to to have this uh, this uh, by-election. Um, will he get it? I believe so. I think people normally like to have a leader as somebody in their, their riding, so that could be also a factor. Um, but that the thing that he hasn't been there is not as much enthusiasm towards him that's 
that's troublesome. And I would even go a bit further is that even if he wins, I don't think that the problems that the NDP is facing currently will be solved um, because there are still some dissatisfaction with that mixing. Uh, and then we'll see how he perform in Parliament, which is also something unknown, and it's hard to to do. Um, so yes, yeah, so yes, it's a it's a, the most important by election. He must win. If he if he doesn't, he's he's gonna have to resign. If he, even if he doesn't want to, um, but doesn't have any choice. Genevieve, how much of a factor are, are transplanted candidates in in situations like this? As you mentioned, uh, Jagmeet Singh is is not from British Columbia. Uh, he's, he's when he was in the Ontario legislature. Of course, he represented an area in Brampton, uh, just uh, west of Toronto, uh, and and a lot of people thought he was going to run around there. Uh, but he's over there. I guess just assuming that well, that is a safe NDP seat and probably going to ensure a victory. But as you mentioned, although it's been an NDP seat for a long time, it's it's not really considered a safe seat, is it? No, no, it's not considered a safe seat. A transplanted candidate. Uh, if you are the leader of a party, it's not as a big issue as for somebody else, I would say, because um, people understand that he needs to be in Ottawa in Parliament, and so if there's a seat available at that time for that writing, uh, people will kind of understand the situation, and so uh, take that into account. That being said, uh, Burnaby is kind of very diverse uh, uh, community. Uh, the Asian ascend population is very important also, and so the other candidates are coming from those communities. Will that be a factor for that mixing? I'm not sure. I, I don't really know uh, what's the case. Uh, the survey are not very detailed so um, and uh, reliable, so it's difficult also to pass judgment on that. Um, but yes, for him, the problem is knowing the issue, the, the, the local issue also. And so, as you said, being from Branton and then going to uh, um, British Columbia, the reality is not the same, the issue are not the same, and so it could be more difficult for him to understand what's going on and, and to, be, to present himself as a good candidate. I haven't seen him also as presenting it the face of a national leader. We haven't seen a lot Jack Mead Singh outside from BC. We haven't seen him talking about national issue at large to all Canadians. And so what kind of a stature does it project to everybody, including those in the writing of Barnaby South? Um, that's not very clear for me either. Well, he made the decision when he won the leadership some time ago now to not immediately seek a, a by-election and to see to, and to and to try to garner a seat in the House of Commons. Do you think he's re- lived to regret that decision? I think now, yes, with time. Uh, at the time, maybe it was a good decision, but now with uh, uh, the years, we we kind of see that this is missing. Um, and the fact is that he hasn't built a lot the brand of the NDP. So, who's the face of the NDP in the House is not very clear. What's the national message of the NDP? That also is not very clear. And so maybe it would have been easier for him to have a seat in the House. Um, and yes, but that would have brought his attention to something else, so more debate in the House. But uh, that would have been useful for him to be known a bit more, name recognition, and also be known as a leader. So uh, like, for instance, the SNC-Lavalin file for the moment, he's not there to present the position of the NDP. So we don't know what kind of a leader he is in front of that kind of crisis. Um, so yes, with res- some restor- retrospective, we could say that that was probably not the best decision. But in, in, if, if he's successful, and, and as you say, he's trying to increase his profile with the federal election coming up in October, uh, he, he wants to get into the game, which in other words, get into question period, be there, and, 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 and try to hold the, the government to account. Obviously, that's the, the, the short-term goal. But does he really have enough time to make a, an impression on Canadian voters in that fashion? I mean, if he, if he wins tonight and takes a seat, uh, 
probably he's got about three months before they break for the summer, and then there's an election. So there's yeah. there's not a whole lot of time for him to to make his mark. No, and what do he do? What does he do tomorrow? <laughs> there's an important period of question tomorrow in Parliament, and so does he rush to Parliament tomorrow to be there? Uh, that would be a strong uh, message. That would be interesting, but I don't think that that's feasible. He has to take the, the plane and coming here in Ottawa, and so yes, how how does he prepare for those uh, appearance in the House of Commons? It's not easy, and as you said, it's only three months. They don't work every week, so uh, there's about, I think, 10 weeks left in Parliament for him to show what kind of a leader he is, where he wants to bring the NDP uh, for the next election. So it's a very limited time, I would say. Yes, I agree with you. I want to figure out other issues. I mean, obviously, we've talked about the SNC-Lavalin situation in Quebec, and that's going to have an impact there. Uh, the pipeline issue, of course, is pretty big still in British Columbia, but it's pretty hard to get a read on, on where the public in Burnaby South actually are, are on, on that particular uh, issue because uh, we hear, of course, that a lot of the support for pipelines in British Columbia seems to be centered around the major cities, especially around Vancouver. So they, it's, it's pretty tough to get a read as to how whether or not they're angry or supportive of the federal government in that issue. Mm-hmm. And so we know that uh, now, um, I think the federal government will try to delay this decision because it's probably going to be a very sensitive uh, uh, topic. Um, and yes, I agree, it's difficult to have a read on that. Um, BC is going to be really a question mark for the next election. So for, at least at the time being, what I could see is really not clear. There are many, many issues. Uh, we are talking about the pipeline. We could talk about housing also, which is also an important topic there. And so how would it would unfold uh, for the next federal election is not clear. And how the NDP will present uh, interesting proposals for the electorate over there. And so it's one thing. And we do see it with the SNC-Lavalin uh, case for the moment. So the Liberal trying to please uh, people from Quebec and people from outside Quebec. It's going to be the same thing with the NDP. So how do you peel, please people from Quebec with people from BC, Ontario, and other places in Canada? And it's very, it's going to be an equilibrium exercise, I would say, and so very difficult to, to do. So for every three major leader, or for leader if the Green Party is also counted. Um, so yes, difficult to to, to assess, but uh, important, I would say. The uh, let's, let's just very briefly let's get back into uh, to the SNC for just a second here. Mm. Uh, the minister who uh, lost her portfolio and eventually resigned, of course, uh, Judy uh, Jody Jody Wilson Marybone uh, is from British Columbia, obviously, yeah. uh, and and a very prominent member of the Indigenous community there. Uh, do do they hold a grudge against the federal government, against the Trudeau government, because of the way she was in their minds, in many of their minds anyway, mistreated? I think so. Yes, that's what we have heard. Uh, we heard her father going on in on air saying that how how he was displeased. He's also an important figure in the community. So yes, they are on please. Um, the thing though with uh, the indigenous community is that normally they don't vote at the federal election. They don't have this uh, natural inclination to pay attention to electoral uh, elections because as they say, probably rightly, is that it's not for them. It's not something of concern for them. And so this dissatisfaction could turn out as not going to vote for the next election instead of supporting another party. So that's going to be interesting to see how harmful it's going to be to the Liberal uh, government. Uh, now, since then, uh, we saw last week there were some announcements uh, aimed at uh, Aboriginal uh, Indigenous uh, communities uh, 
about housing, for instance, and so the government will still, I think, present some proposal and continue uh, with the file with reconciliation and, and trying to support the indigenous community. So we'll see how people will balance that uh, when deciding about their vote and if they vote. But that's for sure. Uh, the SNC Lavalin, the Liberal, had did, did lose some some support in in BC. That. Well, the voters have their say today, and we'll certainly be talking about it uh, in the weeks ahead. Uh, Genevieve, thanks as always for your input and your perspective on this. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you very much. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.